0: This is John Glenn. Please check out MI6 Confidential magazine. Licence to Kill, which is my ultimate bond. You'll be interested to to hear what I say about Licence to Kill.
1: Welcome to James Bond and Friends. Uh, This week we are doing a focused episode on the 1989 Timothy Dalton movie, License to Kill, which has an interesting history and also an interesting place in fandom. But what better movie to discuss after we've had such a a contentious response to No Time to Die? We could just pick a movie that everybody agrees is great. (laughs) So as everybody probably knows, did not have a spectacular box office, particularly in in the U.S., um similar challenges no time to die and find in terms of finding its us audience um so what we're going to do this week is come up with our hypotheticals for the multiverse what if one element had been changed in the film uh, do we do we think that would have been an improvement or is it one of those kind of like usual fan wishes like having connery and majesties um so with that i'd like to introduce our panel this week bill sean lisa and ben would you like to introduce yourself
2: guys Hey there, this is Phil Nobile, Jr., Editor-in-Chief of Fangoria Magazine, sometime contributor to MI6 Confidential.
0: Hello, I'm Sean Longmore. I'm a graphic designer and artist, and sometimes I do Bond poster stuff.
3: I'm Dr. Lisa Funnel. I'm a university professor, award-winning author, and podcaster who specializes in gender in James Bond and other action films.
4: Hello, uh, this is Ben Williams. I write for MI6HQ.com and the magazine MI6 Confidential. All
1: right, thanks, guys. So uh, as nobody else wanted to go first, I'm going to float the first Mm -hmm. What If for License to Kill, um, which is what if this film had been very successful in the US? Um, It was released in a year where we had Lethal Weapon and Batman uh, were the big films, the action films of the summer. Uh, and usually it was released in the summer. Um, usually Bond films go in the winter. Um, but what if this had actually struck a chord with US audiences with this harder tone and violence and you know higher certification at the box office? And what if that had set the tone for other Dalton movies um, with a harder edge and less family-friendly as we used to? What do we think would have happened in the franchise?
4: I I think that a lot of this would have come down to it's interesting you brought up the the competitors uh, at the time, uh, James, because I think there's a slickness to uh, both Batman and Lethal Weapon um, in terms of kind of production value that isn't really... um, as prevalent in in license to kill and i th- I think it was always going to suffer b- because of those production values but let's say that if it hadn't nestled next to those kind of very slick movies um it, it maybe its production values wouldn't have looked so poor by comparison and if if Tim had been sorry mr Dalton had been uh, we're not that close uh, it, you know accepted um more i think we would have seen this craig style era from from him and i think um craig has shown that audiences can be receptive to that kind of darker tone um and i think we might have had two or three more films that were you know kind of more 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 craig era style you know more hard-edged and i think it, it, it would have it, we would have been looking back at a, 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 a Dalton's era in, with very different eyes.
2: Oh, I think the downside of it would be, had this movie been a big hit, it would have given them a license, haha, to uh, con- <laughs> con- continue to cheap out. And then it might have started a downward slide into like a sort of Canon Films, Golan and Globus uh, programmer vibe for- mm ensuing Dalton uh films you know if, if this is what the people want then okay here right. we're, now, now we're gonna now we're gonna cheap out on the next one and um I think that in part the perceived rejection of this was was the, sort of the fuel to to reinvent the franchise for for the 90s to try to make it exciting again to make it air uh-huh. quotes matter again whereas if if this if the if the message that they'd gotten from the public was "License to kill is the bond that the people want we might have had something just sort of like maybe a notch or two above a Chuck Norris movie. Uh- <laughs> going forward.
3: No, but I, I think that you're, you're right. I mean, my concern is that we wouldn't have had the Brosnan era in in the style and with, with the mixture of humor and the type of action and the type of special effects and the budgets and so on and so forth. And I'm somebody who loves the Brosnan era films and especially the first three. We wouldn't have had um, a Golden Eye and a, and a Tomorrow Never Dies that would look that way and feel the way that they did and got so many people excited again about the James Bond franchise. So I feel as though it would have shifted the the tone. And I think you're right about notions of budget. It really would have sent us down a very different path. And we might not have received I, I know some people don't like Brosnan, so they would have been like, ah oh, darn. But for somebody like me who grew up with these films and loves these loves these films, I'm worried that we wouldn't have had, you know, those those great action flicks.
2: Well for for a minute anyway. Like I, I think so let's say license to kill was a hit. Then suddenly, so then you've got I don't know, we have to sort of hand wave some of the MGM financial problems away, but you could have gotten something else in 91 and maybe again something else in 93. But whatever happens there, True Lies still happens and shakes the series out of its complacency mm-hmm. and sort of reminds them that they need to like you yes. know, pl- play with the big boys again. So I, it would have been a, a weird little appendix of the franchise, but I, I don't know if it would have derailed it forever. Yeah,
4: I, I think Phil's absolutely right. You can't look at the, the pre-title, which is essentially a Bond pre-title sequence in, in True Lies and not think that that wasn't going to... You know, just be a real hard slap in the face for the for the for the franchise. I I would counter what Phil said earlier about um about it it setting a trend for being uh, cheaper or or whatever. I mean, I, like I, I I understand that one of the reasons were that they shot outside of pine wasn't because they didn't have the money necessarily. It was more that the tax breaks would have been better outside of it so the the budget wasn't substantially changed it was just that they were going to get more bang for their buck they they got 15
1: they effectively got 15 percent more movie by leaving
4: yeah and and that's my, my argument is isn't that that they made it cheaply or they didn't have a budget they were literally looking at a way to to get more money out of the of the budget that keep, they had to or keep the,
1: to keep the scale yeah
4: yes exactly so i don't believe necessarily um that that it would have set a trend for things being worse going forward i think those other kinds of slicker hollywood films would have at some point ex, you know like exerted their influence as as Phil sort of said with with True Lies. And I I think there would have ultimately been a point where something like GoldenEye had to happen, um, but I just don't think it was necessarily um, tied into how well, how, how polished or how slick License to Kill actually looked.
1: I'll throw in that. I think if License to Kill had been a huge success for the US audience, given its US locations in the beginning, which, by the way were originally going to be the bahamas wasn't going to be the florida keys um i think there would have been more pressure from mgm who re, you know and ua previous to them to start shooting them in the states rather than in the uk
4: well so maybe it, maybe
1: we would have seen more pressure to produce them in the us it, it, it's
4: course. possible i mean there was a there was also a trend sort of late 90s to kind of shoot in places like Fox Studios Australia and, um, you know, because they were, they were the cheaper locations, you you can't, you can't necessarily say that, um, it was always going to be the the US. I mean, they're like Prague is another place, which has a a very big sort of, uh, in the commerce cheap film industry, um, where you can, you know, you can, you can set your studio up there and, so I don't know whether it would have always been. Let's just shoot in cheaper studios outside of Pinewood. Well,
1: that's what Casino Royale did. Nobody seems to complain about it.
4: Right. Yeah. No. Exactly. Um, um, quite. Quite substantially. So, in fact, um, and I, I don't necessarily think that that um, philosophy would have would have resulted in uh, less good. Less good films.
0: I, I've got. I've got to ask: Is is um budget kind of like the cited as the main reason as why *Licensed to Kill* is so different from *The Living Daylights*?
1: Often, but I think it's an easy option. I a don't easier. think
4: it's a fair. I honestly don't think it's a fair uh, c- comparison, really, because I think one of the reasons why the, the film ended up so that the original philosophy was that it's going to be cheaper to shoot. In south america you know in, in mexico um or wherever they've shot it <laughs> sorry i'm having a, I'm a brain fart um mexico right yeah yeah um i think the original original idea was just basically it's going to be cheaper to shoot there but they had um compounding issues like fire uh that i think they could this one of the sets caught fire right yeah,
1: they had, there's a ton of problems. I mean, it yeah, was so by no means what, safe.
4: what ultimately happened, and b- because I think also they didn't have this shorthand of, um, you know, this 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 familial shorthand with the crew, um, that compounded problems as well. So I, I don't necessarily think it's this like for like we've got more money here or, or less money here. I, I think it was partly just that they were, you know, maybe in maybe in a different kind of. Production headspace, I I guess, and out mm. of their out of their comfort zone a little bit. I don't know.
0: And 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 have has anyone cited sort of like how much License to Kill* was influenced by films at the time? I mean, it's it's kind of obvious. There's kind of a *Die Hard* factor to it. Yeah,
1: it was. I mean, but, even but, down <laughs> to the hiring of Michael Kamen, right? I mm-hmm. mean, that was straight out of that play. The, the
0: soundtrack sounds so similar to *Die Hard*. Mm-hmm. But was there was there a point in pre-production that we know of where people where Bond the Bond production crew kind of went, right, we've got to be like this, rather than carrying on on that kind of like because the Living Daylights kind of oozes sort of style and there's a there's a sort of richness to it that license to kill I don't think it has, but it's really strange because it's not it can't be just how it looks because the directors are same, the cinematographer's the same. So it's just really interesting to me, the, the, the
4: sheer difference between those two films. Where did, that, where did that direction come from? Well, cinematography plays a part in that, right? So who was the cinematographer on um, The Living Daylights? I mean, some of that cinematography is just beautiful. Shots is thing, the same thing, guy. It's, it's, uh, Yeah, it's Alec Mills on both of them.
1: Alec Mills, hmm. sorry, yeah. Yeah. So that is... So, uh... I, I, the core team was the same.
4: You know. Yeah, but it's 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 kind of like you know you can't you can't sort of have that that, that sort of that beautiful sunrise shot that they have in um, uh, the Living Daylights, mm-hmm. and not kind of think that you know it's not like it's not like Mexico didn't have have beautiful vistas or architecture or you know there's not there's nothing lacking in the locations. It's just how it was shot. Right? Yeah, I'd agree with that. So, you know, you, you could you could take we we talk about production value, but really ultimately it's it's the the cinematography and the look of it and
3: Yeah the um, aesthetics
4: are completely aesthetics. and I think there's nothing there's nothing in License to Kill that isn't isn't potentially beautiful, you know, to be shot. You know the locations are fantastic, even even uh, the Florida Keys. You know it's just something we hadn't seen before in a bomb film. It's lush. It's you know it's it's that close to that kind of that tropical kind of feel. We could have really done something amazing with that. Um, it it just looks sort of shot for television, and that's I mm-hmm. think its drawback.
2: But what do you mean by that? What do you mean by shot for television? Because I'm looking, I, I'm having, I'm having it playing on 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 mute right now, and I'm just looking at the interiors. And I wonder if the support team is just different. God, there's a film. I can't remember. Maybe it was Richard Donner or somebody who talked about the difference between British film crews and, um, and American film crews. And they just the way they operate was different. And you have to just get your bearings all over again. Mm. And I'm, and I wonder yeah. if some of this uh, stuff, this stage bound stuff here in license to kill looks so cheap because it's because of the, uh, the infrastructure that, that, that the crew was yeah. working within, you know,
1: well, there's a previous example. Um, Diamonds are forever, where they had a split crew between right. UK and US, and you and that looks cheap with the US. Mm. No, no offense to US crews, but it looks cheap. I mean,
2: they're probably you know lazy, shiftless teamsters, so <laughs> yes. you know, no offense taken,
4: <laughs> but it's because it's because they didn't get their four o'clock tea breaks.
2: The tea break, right? Yeah, it's, that was the story, and I can't remember who was telling me that, but mm-hmm. like they watched the crew take a tea break and they were losing their minds. It was some American director who had been transplanted. to. It, it, it under-
4: was, uh, I hate to, I hate to bring this up, Phil on this podcast. Cause I never talk about this film, uh-uh.
2: but it was aliens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was Cameron. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, to, uh, sorry to bring it up
4: uh, that- on the aliens podcast. Um, but yeah, it was, um, yeah, the, he, he basically was come from Corman's studio where they were used to working, you know, 16 hour days without break. And um, yeah, he and both he and Gail Ann Hurd had some issues with the uh, with the tea
2: lady coming in and, and <laughs> stopping
4: things at four o'clock. Right.
2: Probably. So I guess my point is, you know, I, uh, I, I Key creative can have great ideas, but if the, the tools he's given and by tools, I mean, you know, the craftspeople that he's sort of stocked with aren't up to the task, the results can vary wildly. I'm, I'm saying that completely, uh, not talking about my job as a magazine editor or anything like that, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, uh, you, you're, you're, you're limited, you know, uh, by, by the abilities of your, your team. In yeah. some ways, and and I don't know, but it it does not look as good as Living Daylights, and I you know part of me and I'm just taking wild swings now thinks so that that's part of that might be the film stock. Film stock shifted wildly in the '80s, I mm. think. Um, that's why some of those '80s films just don't look good. Like Aliens just has never looked good as a video transfer. Um, and it's something to do with '80s stock.
4: Yeah, I don't know what they shot it on, and that that's another thing too. Is like I think there was a lot of this. Um, Kind of propensity to go shoot on things like reversal for for um, less expense and mm. y- you know and then you get a a less good quality uh, result. Um, so yeah, I, d- I mean I don't know what it was shot on honestly, and I'm sure we could look at the credits right. and see that. Yeah, but, but either way, right
2: after after Technicolor be- stopped being the de facto, you know, uh, film stock, uh, you know, or processing it. It was the Wild West for a minute in the 70s and 80s, and that's why the, the visual quality is all over the place in so many of these films.
4: Yeah, and and I think when, when you talk about something like, I don't know, Die Hard or Lethal Weapon, and you know that the stock that they were using on that does have that extra richness and depth, mm. um, does seem more slicker and more polished. And I think that, that that's actually a pretty good point, Phil, and one that I hadn't considered
1: so I looked it up. So Living Daylights License to Kill* use the same cameras, Ariflex Panavisions. Uh, they use the same uh, cinematographic, cinematographic process, Panavision yeah. Anamorphic. They use the same printed film format, obviously Eastman 5384. They, use the, same negative, they use the same negative format. However, yeah. Living Daylights use Technicolor in the UK as their lab. Oh. Mm. So the
4: processing. And mm-hmm.
2: License to Kill use Deluxe in Hollywood. Right. interesting wow. so that means you know all things being equal someone could take the negative to License to Kill and retransfer it somewhere else retime it and get something mm. more luxurious let's let's maybe, put maybe? that out there to people let's see
4: the luxurious version of, <laughs> of License to Kill and all its Sean,
2: glory Sean Longmore I need you to take some frames from this film That's and uh, do your magic oh, I don't
3: know <laughs> I mean, that could literally just be like an anniversary issue, like remastered or re-whatever the term you're well, using, I mean, and then they,
1: put it out there. <laughs> I mean, you know, technically they did, because they got Lowry to redo all the movies, recolor them, which- <clears throat> uh, and, Yeah, but then they uh, and, it up. Another, <laughs> uh, they it up, and another podcast, will explain how and why they did. Um, so they had the opportunity to do it already. Right. Maybe maybe that was the aesthetic they were shooting for. I mean, well, like, maybe maybe like, if the, I if, don't think I don't think Eon's ever going to release really Spectre without the brown wash on it because that's no, what they want. I, you know. Just,
4: I know. <laughs> I was just about to say though, but maybe for the sixtieth, right? One of the things that fans might really enjoy would be a complete color grading of <laughs> you
5: know,
4: you know, because re- color grading is a lot easier now than it was yes back in the mm-hmm. day. You know, sure. it's not, it's not, you know, you're not. You're essentially just putting a computer wash over it,
1: right? Yeah. I mean, it used to have to dip it in chemicals. Now you just press a, a histogram
4: in, you know, software. Exactly. Yeah. So you could actually get a really interesting look for, I know we're kind of going a bit tangential here, but like, I actually think that this is a really good point. You know, the look of the film is what 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 kind of dictated its success to a degree. It's not that it's a bad film. It's actually one of my favorite Bond films. Yep. Yeah. Um, I I, I kind of let go of the fact that it doesn't look as rich or as deep uh, as some of the others because I actually think it's it's pretty well put together as a film. I, I, I enjoy it. I like the narrative. I like the acting. Um, I think Tim is in his best possible kind of place as a kind of a rogue Bond. You know, it works for him, but it does look a little cheap and... Mm-hmm. you know maybe maybe having it regraded maybe you know maybe these things i'd love it if there's a fan out there who could do a five minute youtube <laughs> side by side because that you could get away with it you, you're like eon wouldn't give you shit if you if you're if you're literally doing a an educational side by side one one screen is the render sure.
2: and academic- i'd be keen to see that fair use thing. We also have to like not discount the fact that maybe John Glenn didn't feel like repeating himself. Maybe this is an aesthetic that they were going for. I mean, think about how great, and I know it was different craftspeople, but at the end of the day, Sam Mendes decided that Spectre looked the way it did versus how Skyfall looked. And, and I, I'm sure it's because it was out of boredom and he didn't want to repeat himself. Um, so we also can't discount the fact that these people wanted this film to look like this and, and, and the grungy, not grungier, but this sort of, uh, the aesthetic Certainly leans into the subject matter in a way that The Living Daylights aesthetic leans into that yeah. subject
1: matter. Sam Mendes wants his films to look different. he doesn't mind if they sound the same.
4: <laughs> yeah, what about? Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, Phil. In terms of like, yeah, we've we've got a darker, grittier, more down to earth um, mm-hmm. narrative. Right, we're dealing with we're dealing with real world. Kind of problems, rather than say some kind of evil megalomaniac who's got sure. a space laser. But I would I would argue that, and, and often people bring up the the Miami Vice kind of comparison to it. There are episodes mm-hmm. of Miami Vice that look better than this,
5: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: you know. So if if a TV show, and admittedly, I think Miami Vice had a crazy budget for each episode, so it's hard to kind of really do a like for like, but I mean especially the stuff that Michael Mann's
1: doing it, you know. We we talk down the Miami Vice aesthetic. People forget it was wildly popular.
2: Yeah. And it was you know? it was uh driven by Michael Mann, who went on to become one of the more sort of influential filmmakers right. of, of the nineties. Right. And it was uh yeah, it was a oh inexpensive show. Uh I think we I think we use miami vice dismissively and we're talking about like blazers with the sleeves pushed up and whatnot
1: people get (laughs) mixed up with grand theft auto these days
2: (laughs) yeah
4: but it was like a million dollars an episode or something for miami vice you know they they had a huge budget for it um but i guess what i'm saying is in terms of when i when i look back at an episode of miami vice like the lighting's better um Mm -hmm. i just it feels like it's just yeah it's lit better it's shot better it's the angles are like. Uh, and this is not to kind of totally shit on on license to kill again I, I i think it's great but i don't know it's there's just something about the edit or the 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 look of it it's 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 something like where you become less than the sum of your parts right yeah like, you know you yeah. put all of these yeah. great things together but they somehow don't work and i i feel like that's what license to kill kind of suffers from is is that there's nothing really wrong with it, but when you put it all together, it doesn't work. Can I? Can we talk about like what the...
1: If they'd have continued in this vein and done a, like another harder edge Bond 3 with Dalton, and let's say it was released in 91, even if it was late 91, right? This was the US box office for 1991. Terminator 2, number one. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, number two. And I'd say they're the only two action-adventure movies in the top 20. Wow. Uh, yeah. After you've got Home Alone, Silence the Lambs, City Slickers, Dances with Wolves, Sleeping with the Enemy, The Addams Family, Naked Gun Two and a Half, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So there wasn't a competitive landscape, really, for action.
4: Yeah, but then, action movies but then in if, if Phil is right, and that they, they took that lead to say, oh, this is what the audience wants, right? And then they put out like Warhead or whatever it was going to be, right, yeah. against... Terminator Two. <laughs> well I'm saying it wouldn't be against Terminator Two. What I'm saying
1: is, as far as the audience demographics goes, that was probably the only movie in the top ten that would have a lot of overlap. The rest were yeah. comedies and spoofs and family movies.
4: Sure. But so you'd have got maybe more bums on seats, but I don't yeah. know whether or not it would have, you know, contrasting a similarly produced um, Timothy Dalton third to a terminator 2 which is arguably you know it's cameron's blue filter and all this Mm -hmm. schmick kind of uh, cgi i think i I wonder whether it would how well that would have held up against it you know the it it was i i saw a um a a preview screening of terminator 2 i was really lucky to get in and see it kind of early um i think about a week before it came out and it was just the the theater fucking exploded, you know? Uh, that's when I knew, kind of knew that it was going to be something that was massive. And, yeah, I, I don't know, like, whether another John Glenn, no disrespect to Glenn, because <laughs> I think he's, he's a good director, um, but against against the Cameron, you know, it, it is kind of
2: peak. <laughs> it's not a great it's not a great round. I know I put my money on. Cameron Cameron I think four different times in his career has made the most expensive film ever made and and Terminator <laughs> Terminator 2 might have been the first time right uh and yeah so it's so so you a uh, third Dalton in 91 would have been unleashed on, onto a, a, a sort of rapidly changing landscape and you have to figure out where it would have latched onto.
3: Mm. and I do
2: think it's on the lower rungs of the programmers of like your your Jean-Claude Van Damme's or your Die Hard 2's maybe um because Jean Claude was flirting with A list at the at the time a little bit with stuff like mm. Double Double Trouble and uh, uh, what's the John Woo one that he did, Hard Target, mm. and so it's not to say interesting things weren't happening at that sort of level, but I I don't think that a a third Dalton in in this sort of budgetary range would be competing with anything but those those sort of uh like I keep calling them programmers, but it, it wouldn't have yeah. been a tentpole. No. Of course of course Connery
1: was in Prince of Thieves, which was the number two movie that year. For so, ten seconds. For ten seconds. <laughs>
4: so, yeah, I'm yeah, Richard the Lionheart. <laughs> um, All right.
1: Next time. So there we yeah, next time we moved that one for a bit. Does anybody want to throw another what if for license to kill?
4: Uh just before we do, and we we touched on Prince of Thieves, and I just want to put this out there. This is a bond-related thing. There is a um, documentary, a 30 minute documentary it's available on YouTube um, uh, I think it's called Robin Hood, The Man, The oh, Myth yeah. The Legend, it's narrated by Pierce Brosnan in the most hammy and theatrical way you could possibly imagine <laughs> um, if if you like 30 minutes of just non-stop hilarity um, please please check this out, it's, it's the funniest thing that Pierce Brosnan has ever done alright, who wants to go next?
2: Well, going the other way, what what if *License to Kill* was an A-list, top shelf, Eon production? How would that have impacted the casting? How would that have impacted the locations, uh, the score? I think so many of the what ifs would come would spring from that choice, right? If they weren't trying to cut corners so much. I keep thinking about how they how the current Trend is to chase sort of Oscar winners and Oscar nominees to play the mm-hmm. supporting cast in these films, mm-hmm. and so I'm trying to picture what a what a an award winning cast in '89 might have looked like. Would we have gotten, oh, Can I can I, can I tell uh, you
1: who John Glenn's first picks were?
2: Yes, please. So, yes.
1: For Pam Bouvier, they first looked at Sharon Stone.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And hmm. Lupi, who was just coming off uh, what's that Indiana Jones knockoff movie?
4: Oh, the uh, King Solomon's Minds. Yes, yeah. Um,
1: and for Lupe Lamora, they wanted Maria Conchito Alonso, who had just done Running Man with Schwarzenegger. Huh.
3: Right, hmm. they were two
1: two of the hottest actresses in LA,
3: yeah,
1: at the time, and that's who they wanted to go after. Pre, here's how
4: much money you have. Hmm. So I think those first choices, you know, big, pretty, pretty big names, and you t- and you do that in Pinewood with you know and you say fuck the tax breaks we're just going to make this where we know we're comfortable and you know i think you might have had a maybe a bigger a, a better movie
1: really and and, and the, the pre titles as we mentioned would have been in the bahamas and not in florida keys mm. the first act of the movie
4: mm-hmm.
2: which would have lent more into the the bond. classic classic mm.
1: bond elements right
2: I keep thinking of the uh, the Javier Bardem factor of it all. Like who who would they have gotten if they were spending real money on the villain, and it's not this guy? Um, <laughs> sorry, Robert Davi. Um, but you I,
4: know, I think look, I, I don't, I don't think that Davi is bad in this at all. I mean, I know
2: that he's he, kind of he's, like- he's not, but he anchors this to a very specific uh, budgetary aesthetic. I think. <laughs> 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 like yeah. there are people in. Canon films like in Charles yeah. Bronson Death Wish sequels that I think are great in those movies, <laughs> but yeah, like no, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I, I, I get you. Ed, Edward James almost in this thing, Raul Julia in this thing. Imagine if they'd really gone top shelf.
4: Um, I I have to say something about Edward James almost, uh, and I know that everybody like, but at the time he hadn't done Battlestar. You know, he'd done he'd done um, Miami Vice. he'd done Miami Vice and he'd done um, uh, you know a little bit of Blade Runner but he's such a good actor like he would have like his stuff in Battlestar is amazing like he is so captivating and I love Robert Dabby but yeah uh, to, to have seen him against Bond would have been something pretty special I think
2: yeah and I think Talisa Soto is a little lightweight, but I also think Maria Conchita Alonso doesn't play sexual very much in her in her movies. And to me, if if you'd gotten like a real top shelf guy like like almost or like Raúl Julia, and then had um, Lupe played by like a Sonia Braga, it would have just been so fucking weird and 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 erotic. Just the two of them in a room together, <laughs> like automatically um, starts I, to get a bit David Lynchy, then doesn't it? And, why not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I don't know. That's, that's some stuff to think about there. Mm. And it was Barry ever, was Barry or not Barry ever a financial thing or just he wasn't available? It was, for him, it was tax reasons, wasn't it? Or oh, it yeah. was budgetary,
1: a bit of both.
0: W- wasn't he, I read somewhere, wasn't he having surgery or something at some
1: point? If it comes down to timing, I'm not sure it's that big a deal because from pre production to release, it's what, a year? And Barry was knocking some of, how long did it take him to do Gone Guns soundtrack?
4: Uh, did is that? I don't know. I mean, he was re- basically just kind of handing in his previous homework, wasn't he? At this point, <laughs> just like scrubbing bits out and putting other bits in. Um, yeah. There was a lot of kind of, with with uh, absolute due deference to Barry. There was a lot of stuff that was a bit familiar, so I think he was able to knock stuff out. Um, and that's not to say that you know we haven't had different composers come in and do a you know great job before but um i I think there's always that kind of that audience expectation isn't there that comes along with with it and maybe if we'd had you know this this bigger cast this better production values and, and a barry soundtrack um but my argument when we started this whole thing and when we were like floating this as an idea was always that it wouldn't have made a huge amount of difference if they'd shot it in, in Pinewood versus shooting it in, in Mexico because I I, th- I think that they would have been restricted by the budget because of tax. What you should really be saying is what if the tax breaks hadn't been... The- right, the ED okay. levies or whatever they were. Yeah, yeah. so... So if you weren't, if they weren't encumbered by those, you know, those issues with the, the, you know, the, the levies or the, the tax, right? Surely that being in Pinewood have, would have made more sense and they would have had a better film. My argument is they did exist. And so we would have had less money spent on it. And, you know, ultimately it would have been, it would have sort of leveled out a bit, I guess. Hmm. Because you know, if if they're literally losing fifteen percent of their budget on, um, you know, having to pay, uh, levies, then they're not gonna, they're not, they wouldn't have wanted to do it. Why do, why they didn't return to somewhere where they had, uh, more familiarity, like France, um, you know, like Craig movies enjoy just going back to, back to Italy over and over. Uh,
1: tax breaks, tax breaks, and tax breaks.
4: Yeah but there would have been similar tax incentives if they'd gone to France or, you know, so I just, I feel like going to Mexico was quite a big jump out of their comfort zone, you know? Um, and Glenn talks about that in our new
1: special actually about it was a complete um, leap in the dark, really because yeah. they did, uh, they did early recce out there and um, I'll, I'll quote Glenn here. He said, I think these studios are a bloody disgrace. I think we should do it the normal way, do all the locations, go back to England. He said. Yeah. And then without looking up from his desk, Cubby said, if we don't do it in Mexico, we don't make the picture. Yeah. So it was Broccoli's decision to do it.
4: Yeah. And I, I and I don't know whether I don't agree with Glenn on this one, to be honest with you. I think, you know, doing the standard way, getting your doing your location stuff and then going back to the studio and paying whatever you needed to pay on that. But I, I can't imagine that they, they were that tight for money, really. Well, the
1: poor, the poor, late, great Peter Lamont spent months basically building those studios within yeah. the shell, within the decrepit shells that were left yeah, from the 60s and 70s. So and then had them burned how much time, in. <laughs> yeah, and how much time and money... Were sunk into fixing them up to the point that they could use them, versus just well, walking yeah, somewhere. Yeah, that's, that's
4: kind of my argument as well. It's like they didn't—they didn't actually end up saving money because they spent that saved money doing doing. Right. The studio. Yeah, so it
1: didn't. No, it didn't not, not too different to Goldeneye and Terminator, the where they had to build their own studios, effectively.
4: Right. But the difference with Leaves Leavesden is it's like it's a it's an ongoing proposition, right? That you can essentially say mm-hmm. these are our studios and we've built them and we can lend them out to you, or whatever or hire them out to you. But you can't go to a foreign country, build their you know, rebuild their studios, and then say we're going to keep these. I, I, <laughs> you know it's like it's, it, it wouldn't have been you know a feasible kind of ongoing proposition really, whereas Leavesden at least is.
1: The one sense I got from all the work we did on this was that focusing on the drug trade came first, which led to the locations being Latin America. Right. Which kinda led to like why don't we just shoot it all in Mexico? So the story actually led the decision, I believe, on this. Right. More than anything else.
4: It's interesting as well that they created a fictional like place for it as well. Which is unusual. Well, getting-
1: Getting permits to shoot in a country usually involves them seeing the script. Yeah. If in the script your country doesn't look good, then... No,
4: I, I, I understand that. I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is that usually a Bond audience is going there to see, you know, yeah, they want to see action and adventure and all of the rest of it. But part of it is this vicarious travel, right, Right. to, to locations. and. A part of you has to feel like, oh yeah, this now I know what it feels like to go to Mexico. But knowing what it feels like to go to a fictional country mm-hmm. isn't necessarily the same reward. You know? I
1: think that's the same problem other films in the Bond series have had with with that when they stretch reality in locations like you know ice palaces in
4: Iceland that don't exist for dine of the Day, for instance. I don't think Um, anyone going there is expecting to see these, these overblown things or reversed shots of, um, railway stations. Um, I (laughs) I don't think they're necessarily going to see these, you know, grand things. They're there to kind of go, I've, I've been to this location or, you know, it's, it's not, it's not so much that, what what i mean is if it's over if it's overly synthetic do you lose that whole yes i think you do i think you do because i think you know once you stretch it out it's like when they say you know they took bond out into space i think people said that that was a leap of reality too far as it is i like um moonraker very much but you know i think that there was this there's there's been this sort of unspoken consensus that you know keep keep on grounded and get him going to places that we would like to be able to go to but can't you know and i think that's one of the things right. that i did with with Goldeneye very successfully it was like you can't go to russia so let's gonna let's let's see that you know hmm. most people hadn't been or so it still had that you know air of of sort of uh, um exoticism um but I think the moment that you start to make things overtly fictional, um, you know, I was very disappointed that I couldn't go and ski in Burn garden <laughs> You know, it was years before I realized that was a made-up place. Yeah. Years. <laughs> I know. I, 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 I still I still really think it's a, it's a great location to go to. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
2: I do you think you're giving uh, at the least the American audience a little too much credit in that? In that, I'm I'm not sure how many people in America watch this and didn't realize that Isthmus was a uh, fictional police. Right. right. You know what I mean? It's like every everything South. I mean, it's 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 an extension of the mindset of like, oh well, it's about Colombian drug dealers. Let's just film it in Mexico and call it something else. Yeah, <laughs> That's, they, they, t-
1: yeah. they they could have, they what could have done about? what Quantum of Solace did, right? Yeah, which is you know shit on Bolivia, film it in Panama or whatever. You know, it's there like you go.
4: just. <laughs> double double somewhere up right yeah yeah. um but that said i mean glenn glenn's right in the sense that they always you know they'd send out a second and then it's how they've traditionally done it and continue to do it send a second unit out get your main bits maybe have the main cast there for a week Yeah, and uh, i'm sure that actually if they had done it in that traditional way they probably would have ended up saving some money.
1: Um, I don't know, rubber palm trees are expensive. (laughs) As the octopusy pre-credits will prove. (laughs) (laughs) Looks a lot like Southern England.
4: (laughs) (laughs) It does. It's just bad day in Cuba. (laughs) Again, not Cuba. Um yeah, I mean that. That said, though, I don't think anyone watches the pre-title credits to because it's a pre- PTS, right? Like, so you you're not you're not really feeling like, oh, we're definitely in Cuba here. Maybe I don't, I, I don't know. I don't think it ruins the rest of the movie. I think the rest of the well, movie what, what ruins is it. What thing. is it with
1: Latin American locations having to be anonymous? Goldfinger pre we don't know exactly where it was. Somewhere in Latin America. Octopus yeah. pre-titles, somewhere in Latin America. License to kill, somewhere in Latin America. It's like,
4: yeah. Um, what's the only time they've it? actually, I guess with Quantum of is the only time they've ever really overtly said that they were in, in a specific place in South America. But,
2: but they weren't. <laughs> but <laughs> they like
1: and uh
2: specter you know like they're specifically in Mexico City. Yeah, but- the bits that the
1: Mexican government <laughs> wanted
2: you to see. Goldfinger's not Mexico? It's not explicitly Mexico. In the script
1: it's mentioned where it is, but it's not in the film.
2: Ah, okay. Yeah, and
4: I think in the in the novel it's it's Mexico, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, um I I but uh, yeah, I, it's it's a
1: it's a, uh, sort of a weird uh, Brazilian Brazilian Moon, Brazilian Moonraker is probably the only example where they're actually named and shot in the same place,
4: in <laughs> and that's pretty weird. Um, right? One of the interesting things about the Goldfinger pre-title sequence is that obviously you know it is uh, taken from the the novel that mention of like him just coming on this mission, but there is also this kind of um, little elements of the short story quantum of solace where he's just come back from um sabotaging uh you know a, a, a drug trade as well in, in a in a latin right. america country uh, but most people don't really pick up on that so, and i think you saying to license
1: to kill is an adaptation of the goldfinger <laughs>
4: no I'm, I'm i'm saying that uh, goldfinger's pre-title sequence is a slight adaptation of um quantum of solace Okay. Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah.
4: All right. So it's then licensed to kill an adaptation of so the Yeah. Yes, it, absolutely. In fact, it just keeps going. Everything is just an <laughs> adaptation. It's like, it's, <laughs> it's like when they used to dupe uh, video cassettes, you know, and they just have, like, those banks of VCRs just duping <laughs> stuff, and then by the time you got it, it was just, like, there was no color left. That's how. It, that's what happened, right? Yeah. It just they, – they produced the film – Somebody was somebody was duping it, and ultimately they we got the 186th copy, <laughs> and that's what got out onto the cinema. It was just it was even a, it was just like it wasn't even on film. It was just somebody had a you know an early Be early Jerry rigged project projector up.
1: So we've talked about the locations and the Miami Vice overtones, which are two things you want to talk about, Lisa. So sorry they kind of got covered in other questions. But you had one about
3: thanks, Bonds. Thanks, bonds. guys. Yeah,
1: you had, you, had, you, had a what if, you had a what if about his motivations, right, listen.
3: Oh, no, I've been listening. You've had a very interesting conversation with a lot of details. And I do find it interesting that when it comes to the depiction of Latin America, that we really don't get concrete representations and that there's a lot of assumptions and stereotypes and generalizations. And that is more of a typical... Western Hollywood, um, Western media take on it that we really don't get strong enough representation. But my, one of the, the big questions that I had, one of my big, what ifs also has to do with notions of representation. And it really has to do with Della. Um, you have this marriage between Felix and Della. You see a lot of love between them. You see this warmth and fondness, uh between Dalton's bond and 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 this family that's being created and you have an attack on the lighters. And I guess one of the things that has always rubbed me the wrong way about this movie is that Della has to die. Um, and there are insinuations that maybe some sort of sexual violence was also taking place. Just sort of uh, some looks that were given to her. Um, but Felix Lighter survives. And I guess my big what if is, what if Della didn't die? Was it really... Necessary to propel Bond to go on this mission. I don't like it when women are just violated for violation's sake or killed off just you know to create a point. Whereas I think an attack on Felix Leiter on its own would have been enough to send Bond on a mission and going rogue. There would have been enough emotion because Brotherhood notions of brotherhood, that's a huge motivation. And as someone who watches a lot of Chinese martial arts films, specifically Hong Kong films, you watch those films and it's really the love of another man, that brotherhood connection, um, a, a violation of say that trust or somebody being killed that really pushes you and moves you forward. And that makes me also think of you know the the way that No Time to Die represents that brotherhood bond and the emotional impact that it has on Daniel Craig's James Bond with his connection with Felix Leiter. The attack on him only he ends up not surviving that watery in that watery grave, whereas mm. Felix Leiter does. So I guess my big what if here really has to do with like what if Della didn't die.
4: Well, he doesn't exactly respond as if he has lost a wife, does he? He wakes up in hospital and he's kind of like, you know, do you think anyone's
2: told him yet? He's full of opium at the time. like he's oh, all okay. got that morphine drip going.
4: Hey James,
2: He's also smiling at that
4: nurse, though. So yeah, uh-huh. yeah, maybe maybe Are there we- was some kind of collusion between that Felix. Uh-huh. And, I think you
2: guys need to stop grief shaming him. Everyone grieves in their own way, and you that's know true. Maybe, that's, maybe Felix. That's ne- Felix needs to you know lose himself in the arms of a nurse. Yeah, you're quite right.
4: Uh, I'm I'm sorry, Phil. Uh, it's a good question, Lisa. Um, and I often think that in um, screenwriting, you get these um, sort of over needs to sacrifice, either like. Some it, it's it's kind of like they killed the dog. How could they kill the dog? And in order to like, they do that sort of thing with Della in a way. They set her up as this just this lovely, warm person that you just immediately like. And um, and you know, they 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 kill her to kind of make a make that kind of point. Really, it's like, but then that that reduces Della to this you know fairly you know
3: disposable
4: yeah thank you <laughs> I, and I didn't i didn't, I didn't I, it's hard to kind of put it into into words without it sounding just fucking awful right But
2: well there's a whole in- there's a whole phenomenon of this it and it's um it got called out in i think 99 by a comic book writer named gail simone and it's called women in refrigerators it's called fridging <laughs> and this is a thing that this is a thing that uh we do in drama where we we sacrifice a vulnerable woman to propel the male uh, lead to take action. Um, right. And certainly this is not the first time the Bond series has done it. It's happened yeah. many, many times. But it, it, is, it does kind of hit weird here because she is the only such such uh, individual in Dalton's run. And we are sort of like in a very quick few minutes meant to care about her. You know what well, I mean? She's
4: not, she's not
2: sexualized
4: either, right? She's not well, a love interest for
2: Bond. Well, they, so kiss all, they She kisses him a lot at their wedding. I don't know. That's yeah, a whole they, you know, other that's, thing. That's true. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. She's not. She's not Bond's object, right? I think that's true. Right. Getting and there. So, so it's
4: thus, thus, I think she is presented much more um, in this kind of uh, familial. Well, we're so we're so often used to the, the presentation door, <laughs> of women in film being you know these kind of tropey presentations of women right they're, they're either like sexual or you know book bookish or whatever it is right they, they tend to be Types. fairly mm-hmm. trope uh, mm-hmm. representations of women she's not a particularly tropey character but um you know what happens to her is pretty tropey uh, it's more and I hate to say this Lisa and please forgive me in advance but it's almost like they've set her up like a nice golden retriever you know that mm-hmm. Bond likes and pats on the head and then you've shot my dog kind of thing And it's and also the the it's not even an implication it's a direct kind of well it is it's, a, it's an oblique implication of, of sexual violence before her death as well uh-huh. and I think that that also is just horrific when you consider that you know how she's it's just it's just a horrible thing right just to think this lovely person that we met for a couple of minutes and gone oh she's really nice just died in this horrific way um off camera and we weren't even really given an opportunity to kind of mourn for her really or it's i think Dell is a really fascinating character in that respect
2: but Scenario is very strange to me because it's it's not even let us just for purposes of brevity call it it's not even Dalton's debt d- to repay. You know what I mean? It's his right it's his best friend who's been incapacitated and now he's like gotta be like his uh you know it's almost like some sort of medieval kind of uh you know proxy. he's gotta like go Yeah, it's his proxy, exactly. And well, what they, what it's they, like the samurai, isn't it? You know, um with a little. Uh,
4: you know, like he's he's kind of like the um his felix is almost like his you know his his lord and he has to go out and his jack lord and
2: what's uh oh man
4: Uh, good night
2: good night everyone um what's what's left on the table though which is kind of interesting is that this could have been positioned a little bit better as like so who's bond and what's bond's relationship to weddings and marriages he lost his wife on their wedding Mm -hmm. day Mm. And his best friend, it happens to him too. And instead of oh, sort yeah, of really yeah. exploiting that and making that the yeah. engine, it just, it's kind of like sort of sketched in and and, it, and it's not um really capitalized on. And I don't know that capitalizing on it would have made it for a better film or would have made more sense that way or dramatically satisfying. But I do think it's a weird wrinkle that they just sort well, of leave as a coincidence. What done,
4: Phil, is that bit where he throws, throws the garter, right? Mm. And he says, you know, Felix says, oh, he, he lost somebody once. Um, they <laughs> should have then gone, yeah, he lost somebody. You know, he lost his wife on, on their wedding night. Could good you imagine? And <laughs> then <that's
2: laughs> good thing that's not going to happen to us. Your dog heard that joke coming and reacted. <laughs> <laughs> I think, actually,
3: though, the hard thing with this theory is that when I watch the film, I don't feel like it's about avenging Della. I don't no, feel not. like he's a proxy. I feel like he's pissed off at what happened to Felix. And it. it I, I think you're right, Phil. Like, it could have been a very direct, like, you know, we are brothers. This happened to his wife. I'm going to be on a revenge. And instead it just becomes, you know, Bond's got two women and, you know, it just goes (laughs) down a a totally different path. And it becomes more about Lupe Lomora being um, victimized and being in a bad relationship. Right. That becomes more of the focal point than the abuse and the sexual violence that Della and dirt before she died like all of that is so horrific and it's glazed over and it's just it's there and i'm just like it didn't here's my thing it didn't need to be there right it would have been great if he just would have been kidnapped and she found him and then she's like oh my god what happened to felix and then bond walks in like it wasn't actually a necessary component because bond would have gone on that mission to he avenge did, felix huh? anyways so
4: he'd have right. anyway what, yeah. what what let me ask you this lisa would you have Prefer, like so you're saying you could you could remove it and have the film pretty much as it is anyway mm-hmm. how would you feel about retaining it but making it more the focus
3: i think either one would have made like first of all i mean i my my preference is stop showing using mm-hmm. that as a as a plot point, right? right? Yeah. Whether it's the victimize, whether it's usual it's basically utilizing the victimization of women to either embolden men or strengthen women. Yeah. And I feel like it's a trope that it, it we just need to stop doing that. Yeah. So I would prefer the other route, but <laughs> if it is going to be included, make it mean something. Because right. it really doesn't mean anything other than like a <gasps> shocking moment and we're supposed to make this connection in our head that Bond was once <laughs> married and you know that that it's unsustainable and stuff. But even at the ending, when he has the lighter and he's blowing up the guy, like I don't think he's doing that for Della. He doesn't say for Della. You know what I mean? I would be like, "Ooh, we're circling back." It just it always felt like it was for Felix, and yeah. Yeah.
1: So my my theory, honestly, sir, is it wasn't it wasn't relevant to the plot really, because as you say, um, Bond would have gone on this anyway. I honestly mm-hmm. think it was for the audience. Because huh. within the first 15 minutes of License to Go, you've got Loopy getting whipped, a guy's heart getting cut out, and then she gets raped and murdered. And that's going to have people sitting straight in their seats, like this is not my dad's
4: bonfire mm. And
5: mm-hmm.
4: I think it was mostly for shock value to Do set Do you think the when they open. had Victor in the corner with a glass of wine? <laughs> <laughs> <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> Double-taking,
1: looking at the bottle. But I honestly think it was to set the tone for the film, to get people in that groove of, oh, this is not a regular Bond movie now. We're, we're setting the bar somewhere else really early in the film so that you're, you know...
0: In, in, in that sense, so does it come along a little bit too early? Because it it's it, it's cruel, and it's kind of the first time, really, that we see in Bond as a franchise. I'm thinking of it, it's, someone might be able to correct me, that we see sort of a real act of cruelty towards an innocent person typically mm-hmm. people or characters that we see stuff like this happen to in bond are in some way involved in the plot or in some way involved in having a vendetta against the villain or have helped bond or something like that this is dela is completely removed from the situation she's just right.
4: she's just or, or, a normal also, woman nobody yeah nobody um, but, but, but sure nobody nobody even in even with they're involved nobody gets killed in quite well that's that's it it's it's so cruel and it's it's Uh
0: so early on in the film as well and it comes back to if you look at the film in sort of if you looked at the film as a line of story beats this is it's so heightened so straight away and so early on that everything after it kind of feels a little bit numb and it kind of Mm. doesn't hold the same weight to it and that's i don't know if that's why there's some disconnection between that and the rest of the story is that it's just so much so early that I'm, I'm not saying it's I, I justified it's also... and I'm not saying it should be there, but it, it, if it was later on in the film, would it have carried extra weight to then be a mm. story beat to motivate Bond to then get revenge and kill Sanchez?
4: Which you could have done with having, um, you know, Benicio de Toro being out of the movie for a, a substantial chunk of it. We could have been, he could have been there with Della. Do you know what I mean? Like that mm. could have been the, the 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 B B plot, and you yeah. you know we could have we could have seen that, but I, I I sort of feel in a way that I'm glad that they didn't film it. Very glad they didn't film it. Yes. Um, but also I just think one of the reasons why it hits as hard as it does is we've seen people, you know, killed in various horrific yet sort of comic book ways in. In the Bond films, you know, like whether you're falling into a a, a river of piranhas, which I'm sure would have been a, a horrific way to die, right? But you know, there's something about the fact that it is, you know, re- a real death. You know, like this this thing actually happens to women, and uh, and and the, and also the kind of the way that they didn't show it kind of shows that they they had a long conversation about what do we what can we show here you can show somebody being eaten by a shark but you you can't really show that and i think it's this you know this i think it connects with an audience in a way because it's it's grim and real and cruel rather than being fantastical and you know there's a huge difference between you know, a, a woman being violently raped and murdered and a, and a guy being plunged into a shark pool with a suitcase full of money. You know, there's, right, you know, there is a disconnect there. I I, I kind of, I've
0: kind of got a question that, um, a what if that sort of carries on for this. I've been, well, I've been listening to you guys. I've thought of a few, um, but that ties on from this. And that so how, what if License to Kill wasn't a 15? Here yeah. in the UK, it was the first James Bond film to be a 15. It was the first James Bond film to have that age barrier on it. Um, mm-hmm. It's obviously mm-hmm. a very conscious decision of what if they'd not done that.
2: So for context, uh, have they all been 15 since? Uh, yeah, no, they were, so they, they were
0: all 12 since, um, but I believe GoldenEye got a 15 on home release for, I think it was the headbutt, I think, s- was taken sadism. out of the article.
2: Yeah, for Interesting, because in the States, it's just been PG-13 since there's been a PG-13, I think. That's right.
1: Yeah. Um, so they really went to town, the censors on License to Kill. We cover it a lot in the special um, about a lot of it was actually off-screen stuff in the soundtrack they wanted taken out, <laughs> screams and stuff. Um, mm. I think the Della sequence is worse. Even though it was off-screen, it was still worse. Mm. Um, the obviously bits in the mincer and things like the grinder at the end and stuff, which have all been reinstated um, for the UK release. But yeah, the censors really hated this film. Um, what was annoying to UIP who was the distributor for it was that the, the 12 certificate wasn't a thing until September, 1989. And this came out in June, 1989. So they missed it by a few months Mm. and, um, they were pissed, broccoli, especially pissed that Batman was given a 12 in the UK,
5: Mm.
1: not a 15. So they felt very unfairly, um, judged Mm. on this one. Um, had it been given, had it waited to get a twelve like later in the year, if I had a traditional winter release and got a twelve, would it have done any better at the box office? I think that's a like your question, Sean, isn't it? It's like
0: Yeah, it it just seems it's it there's a very obviously a very conscious decision to frame this at adults, and this is a a thing that's kind of rubbed me up the wrong way a long time. Um there's a t- I I know a lot of people are harking on that how Dalton's very serious and how Dalton's grounded and how Bond shouldn't be for kids. But honestly we we all grew up with James Bond we all started watching Bond as a kid it seems such a bizarre commercial choice to suddenly obscure half your audience and half your box office taking office taking yeah from being able to come and see the film it's such a I, I I understand sort of the meaning behind it from looking at story and wanting to explore character and development and wanting to put this gritty violence on everything but also, be pragmatic. What, what did you expect? You were going to lose some money by making that decision and putting that
2: barrier there. It's so strange. So I have another cont- context question about the British rating system. Does that mean that children under that age are not allowed in there? Yes. Wow. Yes. Because yes. In, the, in the States, it's just like, as long as there's a yeah. grown-up with you, whatever. No. So in
1: the UK, a 12 is a 12. You can't get in on the 12. a 12. or 12 age, you can go if you've got an adult with you. I see. Okay. But they didn't hmm. come out, 12 didn't come out until late 89. So it was either PG or 15, and there's a big gap between those two. And, I see. Yeah, prior to the 12 coming out. Yeah, so I, I couldn't go, I was, I mean, this would date me, I couldn't go see License to so Kill. It's my first <laughs> movie in the theater was gone. No, right? But I did see it on VHS when I was 11. Okay. Right? So, you know, VHS restrictions in the rental stores weren't <laughs> as tightly controlled as the cinemas. Um, Got it, but I, I don't know how you cut it to a PG. Like they would have had to wait till the 12 came out later in the year. Mm-hmm.
0: I, it's, it's. I think the very nature of the subject about it being drugs, I think, would have ruled it out for yeah. it being a PG anyway. Um, but yeah. again, then wh- who made the conscious decision then to go? Well, we're going to make the film about drugs. If it's going, if you know, like these people would have known that it's going to put them into this age bracket straight away. It, it just seems. At the end of the day, yes. It Bond, seems like
1: they can't complain about it, right? Yeah. Is
0: your point. And, and, and bonds, it, yes, should be a thing that explores stories in this character, but also you've got to make money. So be, be smart about it. And it doesn't seem like a very smart decision to go in quite such a grown up direction, especially when they got the balance just right
1: with the living daylights. You know what? It would have been a great Felix spin off plot movie because <laughs> you could have gone harder with a Felix spin-off. Or you could have based it in the States. You could have made it for less money, and you could have been more profitable.
2: But then you had David Hedison as a franchise starter. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't think you would have. <laughs> All right, I've got another ratings question, though. So, Octopussy, someone gets shot yeah. in the head in that movie. Uh-huh, yeah. As they, and a clown gets stabbed like a, with a throwing knife. What was that rating?
0: No, it was, it was PG originally. I think no. I think it might still be a PG. I think it's post Brosnan that they start going up to twelve. And a
2: PG in the UK means who anybody can go, but we parental suggest guidance. you have your parents. Yes, parental, parental guidance. guidance.
0: And then a U is anyone can go. And I don't think any of the bonds are a U. No. Okay. They were in the
1: beginning.
3: they
5: were so are A's. you? Mm.
3: So are you saying that this film and Golden Eye? Sorry, I'm trying to follow our conversation here. <laughs> we're both given higher ratings because of sexual violence. Is that the reasoning for both of them? Because I always find it interesting how certain things, so for instance, hyperviolence, even today, gets you know lower coding, but different types of things like sexual content and sexual violence might raise it up higher. I'm just wondering what the if, if we're arguing that that's the determining factor for both the films, because these are back-to-back films, right? Mm-hmm and yet one did incre- incredibly well at the box office and the other not so
0: much. Um so so Golden when it came out was was a 12 and I think the censors okay, yeah, I think the censors ran it through and what I I don't know I could be making this up but what I heard was that it, in the theatrical version it's it's um, the main cut it's the, headbutt. It's the headbutt between
1: yeah.
0: Xenia and uh, Natalia yeah um and I believe that was then put back in for the home release which made the home release a fifteen.
5: Really? Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. The BBFC, huh. the British Board of Film Classification, really hate sadistic violence and head and they, trauma. They, yeah, they don't <laughs> like it at all.
2: No, well, no, one, no one. The headbutts are headbutt. what got cut out of Casino Royale, right? To get it the headbutts in the shower uh, uh, in the bathroom fight at the beginning in Casino Royale were part of what yes. had to get cut. Yes.
3: Yeah. Really. Huh?
2: Because if it's if it can be replicated by children, and then it's a bigger cause of concern, and they don't want kids headbutting each other, right? Who which does really?
1: The, which is then remember these, which is why the you've been tango dads got bad banned. <laughs> 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 what? Because
4: people were tangoing people. Yeah, because kids were <laughs> replicating it, and it was also <laughs> head trauma. God. Oh, really? Yeah, that's an interesting way to sell a, a soft drink, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, band ad, <laughs> like <laughs> really terrible. Um, I'm glad though because they were just terrible adverts. <laughs> so I think your point, Sean, is like
1: they 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 cast their own fate by their story choice, right? Yeah, I, Which, I, you know, so.
0: yeah. Just why it's always baffled me as a decision. I like, I love License to Kill. I think it's really, it's really good. It's really strong, but I, I don't, I don't like this sort of framing that bonds shouldn't be for kids and bonds shouldn't be for families. Like, yes, it should. That's part of your audience. Get a new audience into Bond and right. that's how you make the franchise sustainable.
5: It,
4: it was, it, you know, it was as big a departure to do that as say Casino Royale was after Dying Out the Day, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it's such a, it's such a tonal shift. It's such it, a,
0: when you look back at sort of the press and the media at the time it was it was all over the press that this bond was a 15 yeah. there's a there's a clip somewhere it's on YouTube of um, some reporters asking to Soto outside of the premiere why is this bond film a 15 yeah like it made it that far it made it onto the headline news yeah um, so was was it in some way just kind of a publicity stunt did, did, did they ask Idris
1: Elba what he thought <laughs> 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 he wasn't old enough to get in, was he? They waited for Goldeneye. They waited for Goldeneye, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, no, I was just going to say, since we were
0: on the Idris Elba thing, maybe this ties into my other question, is what if um, Brosnan had done The Living Daylights and then gone on to do License to Kill this film? Like?
1: I, I don't think License to Kill would have happened, personally.
4: I, I don't know, and this is no... Disrespect to Brosnan because actually, I I I, I think he does. You know, f- f- he 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 picks certain roles, but he's not. Um, he's actually quite capable as an actor. Um, so so to sort of feel like he wouldn't be able to. You, you know I, I don't mean he wouldn't be able to do it
1: i just don't think it would have come from him to push the character into that direction no I, I, especially I, if you watch that robin hood thing which he shot just have <laughs> glasses to kill him out <laughs> i mean
4: that guy doing that that thing. guy right oh that guy
1: not the brosnan we know from golden eye onwards but, but the brosnan guy. of 8, 89 90 yeah, oh different guy yeah no, that would
4: have been quite funny i think um i i think also Brosnan's strengths, and Lisa sort of touched on this earlier when, when we, were, we were talking about Goldeneye, Knight. Uh, you know, is is his his ability to kind of, and I say pastiche in the in, in the, the, the the kind of the positive way of saying it, um, take elements of of, of Connery and more, and you know have have a very kind of smooth, slick secret agent who you know was very very far away from what uh you know dalton was trying to do and that's and 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 that really was you know Brosnan's strength was was to be able to do that and it wouldn't have worked really that kind of performance in that kind of film just don't think the two would have married at all you know um, right in the in this in the same way that you couldn't have Roger Moore do that film, you know it, it right. just, that take on the character would have been diff, too 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 disparate, too different. You imagine the end sequence with
1: Sanchez and he says, "Don't you want to know why?" Well, uh... <laughs> well, I'll uh, show you my life.
4: <laughs> what would have what would have um, Roger Moore's uh, quip have been to Sanchez? Um, when enlighten said, me. Enlighten <laughs> me. <laughs> <laughs> enlighten me. Man. Let me, enlight- let that's, me that's enlighten you. Me. Let me enlighten you. That's it. Yeah. Let exactly.
1: <laughs> right, me work- workshop these. <laughs> <laughs> well,
5: allow uh, me to enlighten me you. Enlighten you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um,
0: yeah. So, so I'm interested. Was was the Living Daylights written with Brosnan in mind? Ah, mm.
4: oh, that's a good question. Um, probably not. Uh, uh, well, no, so the, the Living Daylights might have been, yeah. Um, because yeah, I would have.
0: Because they're, because they're, because you've, you've, you've so kind of got the darker Bond element kind of there, and it, you could have kind of carried it on. And Brosnan as a Brosnan's performance, as we would have known it, would be vastly different um yeah yeah because i suppose it's the way he's directed in goldeneye that he carries forward like so your your question isn't isn't so
4: much what would have what would license to kill have been like if if brosnan had been in it it's more like what would the living daylights been like if brosnan had been in it and then gone on to do these other films right yes it's what yeah what if license to kill had been written in mind with for brosnan for brosnan (laughs) yeah and I think James's answer of it wouldn't have been is, is right. pretty, pretty spot on, yeah. Um, yeah, I think... I, I, I
1: do, digging into the production history of this film and talking to so many people over there, which we had done this year, I do distinctly believe that a lot of the direction to go dark came from Don. To lean into the darker corners of Fleming's character. Yeah, um, and, and you can't help
4: but feel that if... if- brosnan had got the living daylights he wouldn't have pushed for that darker edge it would have been a a more lighter let's say kind of more-esque uh performance Mm -hmm. and we would have probably had more like i would i would have imagined that um Brosnan would have would have continued in that vein for 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 like a decade or so you know like I think he would have continued because I think as Sean was saying you can't necessarily exclude a certain aspect of your audience and at that time certainly uh it Bond films were considered family entertainment um even if they had uh some adult themes to them that's what they were considered to be and I sort of feel like we would have gone more down a um, what what Pierce brought to Gold and I would have kind of gone through from uh, The Living Daylights. That's, you know, that's what I think.
3: But like as I'm sitting here, I'm trying to imagine Pierce Brosnan pl- like in this film straight up. I can actually see it. You know, I we've seen him with the loss of a love in Tomorrow Never Dies and the emotion that he can put forward. Mm -hmm. We've seen him with some harder edges. I don't know, maybe. okay. let's be honest. This is not my favorite film, but like. I think I probably would have liked it more if Pierce Brosnan was in this film and just were giving moments of of more lightness with his comedic aspect, um, the way he would react to his dynamics with both of the women. Um, I think that he would pull off. Maybe they would have thrown in a couple more like witty lines in it. But I, I don't know. I can see him. Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's what I'm drinking. But I can mm. see him really. <laughs> like on screen and in these scenes and just really attracting attention. But that also has to do with, you know, my, my, my preference for Brosnan, but I think he probably could have pulled it off.
4: I don't don't doubt. Yeah. Lisa, I don't doubt that he's not capable of doing a film like this. That's not my, my contention at all. I think that I've seen him do some really good stuff outside of, of Bond as well. Um, And I think he, You know, he's, he's, look, he's not Olivier or anything, but he's, he's definitely a very competent actor who's probably underrated for what he can do. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that, you know, like, like a lot of good looking and athletic kind of men, you know, the actors, leading men, he tends to pick those kind of easier leading roles. But I do think he could have, he could have done that darker stuff. I just think, much like James says, he wouldn't have necessarily pushed for it, and therefore the script wouldn't have given him that. But if he had been given that script, let's say that, you know, Dalton walked out last minute and he came back in again and he was out of his um, contract with uh, Remington Steel, then, yeah, you know, like given that exact script – um, I think he could have he could have pulled it off, but I don't think it would have been that exact script. That's mm-hmm. I think the, I think what we're saying.
3: Yeah, it reminds me of different singers when they take the basic song and then they riff in different ways and they add different bits of style. I feel like mm. that's what Bond actors oftentimes do, mm. and things become customized to them. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I can just sort of see a stylization that could take place with yes. him in, in this role. And I would say I'd probably enjoy the film more if that happened, but that I, I'm I know I'm a rare person <laughs> when and it comes I, to
4: I, this. And I don't think you're wrong really either, Lisa, because I mean I think it could I, I really like the film, um, but I think it could be balanced with levity a bit more. And I and I I understand Dalton's um, kind of mindset and what he wanted to do with the character. But I also really like what Pierce was doing in, in GoldenEye, and I, th- I think he was great in that. And perhaps a version of that in, in this film might have made it. Oh,
1: I'm, I'm thinking of the beach scene where he's sitting there mulling his future and, you know, um, hmm. you're going to go and kill him now, your old friend, and all the rest of it. And it's like he, they, they could have lent into that. Yeah. Uh, he, he, could have, he could have delivered that revenge plot. Performance, I did, believe
0: it. The interesting yeah, thing, though, is would would yeah. we have gotten Brosnan's Goldeneye performance if it wasn't for License to Kill? Is that performance, in a way, a reaction to what Dalton did yes. License to Kill? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah,
4: I, de- I definitely think you're right, Sean. That he he want he probably thought he wanted to take it back to a. um Well, they they huh? bloody put that in
1: the caption in the opening sequence, don't they? Mm. You know, seven years earlier. Right. Yeah, i mean like let's scrub like, yeah. all this <laughs> script out of the timeline yeah.
4: <laughs> but it's kind of you know his his performance in it and it's sort of this amalgamation of the the best of it and i i've said this before but it reminds me of the music at the time britpop was looking back to you know all the best bits from the 60s and 70s and they were kind of like creating this it was a new new it was new music but it was it was definitely retro looking, right? And I feel like you know, Brosnan was really doing the Brit bond of kind of right. looking back and taking this kind of and also riding that wave of um you know the cool new pretend, of Britain. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it kind of it kind of all tied into that zeitgeist. So it's 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 very hard to kind of just extrapolate that film and that performance from the politics and the time. You know the it's, it's, I, I think they aren't within isolation of, of
2: one another. So is Brosnan the Stone Roses or the Soup Dragons?
4: Well, I, I, I think that, uh, 89 right. is really when the, the Stone Roses were doing their shit. So he mm. would have, it, it would have been Dalton would have been Stone Roses. <laughs> uh, Soup Dragons was 91. So that's
2: still, still too soon.
4: Still in there. I think we we Blur? I think I think Bro- more blur. Yeah, S-S-L-A. yeah, country He's not country. he's not edgy enough to be Oasis. He's not <laughs> edgy enough to be yeah. Oasis. But like, yeah, like you say, d- Dine of the Day was Country House, and that's where it where it all went wrong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Big house in the Iceland.
1: Yeah. All right. So, um,
3: <laughs>
1: shall, no. we got uh, we got ten minutes left, um, Sean, as our resident designer. Shall we talk about? MGM's um oh, yes what's the um, seppuku that they performed on their marketing campaign <laughs> <laughs> mm. what if this
0: film had good posters go oh, um,
1: right.
0: well we could say, that, we say that about the Craig era too
4: could <laughs> Sean it I'm did sorry. have good posters and then they scrapped those posters <laughs> for, for shit ones the, the stuff that Bob Peake was doing yes was fucking awesome um you know that 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 i'm thinking of that red one where the you know like just that, yep. that kind of still says rev, revoked
2: it's, on it i think right
4: yeah because so because th- that was when the film was still called license uh, license revoked and yeah so instead of just retaining that artwork and then slapping another title on it which i think would have been maybe the, the smarter thing to which, do let's, let's be honest this whole that's happened a lot
1: lately hasn't it <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? it's not, it's but, not um, like they have a rule against it
4: no yeah sure <laughs> but yeah it's 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 really sad that like the 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 actual story of how this the, the the campaign started out and the artwork that they originally had and what they ended up with i think what they ended up doing was something like was approved like a week beforehand or something it was it was, it was to the wire you know it, it was and it was really they did so many different iterations of uh of, of even even the um the photo calls were were awful you know they had um they they had uh, timothy dalton kind of sitting down but it looked like he was standing up so he just looked like he was about five foot and it was weird. Which is very they, weird.
1: They lived, Keith Hampshire told us they literally spun him around on an office chair. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, I'll, I'll let Sean take on the, the actual artistic side of it, but the, but the story behind how they went from having quite a cool poster to an absolutely rubbish one is, is quite interesting.
0: There's just, there's so much to dissect with these posters. Like you could, you could do a, po- a podcast on them themselves. Um, just with how it every choice just seems really strange. Um, and, you know, it's kind of different to how the posters are now. The posters now I get, like, I get why we have this just minimal character shots. We're focusing, we're selling Craig, we're selling Craig to the mums. who are just going to look at the poster and go, oh, that's Daniel Craig. I'm going to go see that. I get it these posters are really strange because they kind of don't they don't focus on casting as an element. They don't tell you anything as a story. They're just a jumble which then you've kind of you're taking Dalton and making him look less like James Bond because you're putting him all in black or you're putting him in a very and making him tiny is, is making well. tiny. He's very, very, very overly airbrushed, which I kind of was. I guess was a thing. Digital airbrushing was a thing, peaking sort of mm-hmm. coming into play in the late eighties. It, it, it's all just, it's all just really odd, and I can kind of see, particularly with the blue one, which I think was the standard over here in the UK. The US one was, yeah. the US one is slightly better. Um, in that you've kind of, you've got Sanchez and Sanchez's face in the background, and a load of fire, and then Bond in the middle, and that's kind of cool. And then there's just a photo of um, Carrie Lowell and Talisa Soto slapped in the middle of it,
5: Ooh.
0: which is it's just like it's literally just put there in a box. <laughs> it's uh, and I, it, it's just so strange. It they don't they don't work. The blue one, you, I don't know where my eye needs to go at all but then when you but then when you look at it in closer detail there is some detail because there's a little house in the background that you're never gonna notice i i'm just really it really puzzles me it's and and i'm sorry to whoever made this and so somebody maybe kind of tried or or (laughs) someone was really sick to the point of they had done that many amends they kind of just went here you go have this
4: It was, yeah. It, I, I think um, James might have a PDF of uh, the article that I wrote on on the story of um, why this happened. Maybe somewhere. I don't know if you do have that, uh, James. Maybe maybe send Sean a copy because it's it's an interesting. It's It's when you read that, or or when you learn, or if you if you find out through your own means the. The background as to how this went from having a pretty solid, um, you know, uh, marketing, uh, direction to just unraveling horrifically within weeks of it being supposed to be out. Um, yeah it's 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 quite an interesting thing because then you start to realize that yeah this was the reason why it looks like it's put together last minute by somebody who doesn't know what they're doing is because that's exactly what happened right um and it's, i think
0: it's just it's just so bizarre I, even yeah. down even yeah. down to the, the 007 at the back well, well why not make that the 007 logo but everyone knows <laughs> why is it just it, it, it it's kind of faded in there yeah. You're, they're coming off the back of the Living Daylights, which is one of the best and strongest marketing campaigns from all of Blonde, yeah. into this. And it, it's kind of trying to be a pale imitation, but trying to be something different and trying to match action film posts at a time, but really not doing that at all either. It, it's so bizarre. And I'm not surprised that it kind of got lost in the landscape of films and that summer period at that time when you have got, Some really strong contenders and some really strong posters out there, and and let's not
4: forget as well that you know, in the same way that John Barry or um, you know Shirley Bassey or whoever it is is like synonymous with with Bond and that sort of expectation, the posters have always been traditionally something you know that we uh, respond to as our you know perhaps it's going to be our initial. you know certainly back back in the day of like oh there's a new bond film out and they and they had these you know we've 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 talked about this briefly on our on the other uh podcast we do sean um a subsidiary uh of, of this one um sub series sub series yeah we we talked about this before but like when you know when we were talking about the the you only live Pu- twice poster you know you've got these kind of incredible crazy angles and it's all this amazing action happening and it just looks like the not just the film you want to see but the universe that you want to live in it's kind of just insane kind of impossible uh gravity defying stuff and then you can trust that with you know the the license to kill posters and it's just it, it doesn't even feel like it belongs in that lineage at all. I, I kind
0: of get, I kind of get trying to move away from that because they're obviously they're going for this grittier feel. They're going to trying to move away from fantasy, which I, I kind of get that creative True. decision. I get why they would look at the Unlift Highs mm-hmm. poster and go, "That's great, but we need to ground it a little bit more." It's sure. just the crazy like brand decisions and inconsistencies. The, if you look at the original teaser poster for License to Kill, right? So there's Dalton in the dark. And then you look Mm -hmm. at the UK uh, one sheet or whatever it was, the blue one. And then you look at the US one sheet, the red one, each of them's got a different title treatment on it. Like one's italic and yellow underline one's white one's tall and gold. (laughs) At one point it was spelt licensed with an S it's just that there's no consistency to any of it. And it just screams of, we don't know what we're doing.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, 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 agree in the sense that, you I, I think what I was trying to say was not so much that this film needed to have a "You Only Live Twice" style poster. What I was trying to say, I think, is that it, even if it had had the simplicity of the Bob Peake one, it would have been one of those iconic posters. It would have. It, there is nothing iconoclastic about what we what we were delivered, and I think even. Uh, you know, even a much more simplistic poster would have would have uh, you know just worked. But it just it, it's as you say, Sean. It's ultimately um, design decisions that just don't make sense. You know, from a from a perspective of like, here's a brief. <laughs> you know, right. Just pick the worst option consistently.
1: <laughs> there were there were versions of the blue the blue quad where. Dalton was a bit more disheveled beaten up um you know tight bow tie untied um dirt on his shirt and they rejected that well, that would have made more sense to me
0: yeah it, it would it would have it would, it would have been better than putting him in all black
1: yeah right
0: that's also never that's something you just you don't want to do that with your leading man yeah' Put him in all black on the, on the middle of your post he's going to get lost yeah so yeah
4: sorry that was that was my little ramble then. I, I think it's kind of uh, um, an unfortunate thing that perhaps did reflect in some of the um, the ability to get bums on seats. You know, we're, we're really looking at so many different factors that kind of affected why it wasn't as successful as it should have been. And uh, you know, the the title is. Um, one of them, you know, in, in terms of selling it to an American audience, a poster, um, yeah, that they they all kind of, um, they all kind of contributed, I think, to to the to how people didn't end up <laughs> going.
0: Right, well, I think it, it, it's probably, it, it probably is an incredibly hard movie to make a poster for, and hard movie to design for because yeah. there's kind of no visual iconic set pieces. Um, or there's, yeah, that's right. no, there's no classic vehicles or gadgetry. One of the other Wait. questions I thought of was, what if Aston Martin had been in this film? Like, There's none of that sort of
1: iconography to pull from. So mm. it's tricky. Uh, You're going to make a great point, Sean, because back in the day of early websites, we like had themed graphics per film and stuff, and icons from each film. And Fury's Only and License to Kill was the two difficult ones to do. And I always ended up using the iguana. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, they got and, and then the truck gets used a lot as well. Which, is, yeah, That's
2: the big entrance. The truck's the iguana, so when it's... That, That's
1: it, really. Mm-hmm. As far as like things to
2: hang like, your hat on, maybe. Mm. And there's been some fan art that sort of leaned on the iguana. Or oh, wait, no, it was it was a rejected poster. It's in the book, it's in one of the books, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Tashin yes. Archives. They sort of lean yeah. on the iguana with a necklace. That's a that's a
4: yeah. It's really a difficult one to kind of. um Market in that respect, isn't it? You know, just like you normally, the things you can do with some of the, some of the, the 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 tokens and iconography of 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 Bond, um, you know, just to sell an image of a film. Um, it's a shame that <laughs> License to Kill has to rely on on a on a lizard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could go, you could go super dark and just like have a. You know, a, a beating heart on a runway. Well, wow.
2: <laughs>
4: take him out back, cut his heart
2: out. Yikes! There's a real nice sort of Drew Struzan style uh, fan poster that uh, a guy named Mark Murphy made for *License to Kill*, and uh, it leans into sort of the '80s color palette of like purple and pink and stuff. And it, I, I really like it. It doesn't really reflect the movie, but I think it's a that's a really fun image. If you, if anyone's listening and wants to sort of. Search him. Yeah.
0: Yes. He he yeah. goes. He goes by thrice champion. That's his, right. Um, yep. Accounts. He's great. I have that poster in my bedroom. tab. fab.
1: Nice. Mm. Any last closing what ifs as we uh, wrap this one up?
3: I I have one. What if Felix Leiter died?
2: It's <laughs> a different movie. <laughs> right, <laughs> just, <wasn't>
3: like <laughs> just pick up that process, right? Like, why, why leave him? Why leave him there to say anything? Wouldn't it have been just easier just to kill him? I, I think it? we're
1: we're still in the cubby broccoli is the producer era where um, there are some things are sacred and killing off one of your routine characters is not.
0: Well, did that, okay. co- did that conversation literally... happen, or was it always just we're taking it from *Live and Let Die*
1: the book?
4: Well, that's, it, it was
1: it was using the live and let die sequence.
4: Yeah, that, that's that's the thing, isn't it? Because in if you're gonna if you're gonna try and keep it tight to Fleming Cannon, then he does live. You know, he right. You know, he's, he, he he survives it in the book. So I don't know.
1: Would it have changed the story though,
4: Lisa? I I I don't think so. No,
1: he still would have gone out for revenge. He still would have flicked the lighter over. He still would have enlightened Sanchez.
4: But then, but then Felix wouldn't have met his next wife who who helped him through his recovery. Um, the fact that she was 19 really, she was quite mature for her age, and um, I'm sorry, I don't know where I'm going with this. (laughs) Well,
1: what if Money Funny had been in the movie for more than 33 seconds? Um, I was surprised to find out that they built that set for her in Mexico and flew her out for it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> well, oh, she could she could have tagged along
0: with
4: Q.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Well, oh. nowadays that would be standard, wouldn't mm-hmm. it? Mm. That's that is that is quite um, that is quite funny. Um, yeah, it would have been nice to have um, maybe expanded some of these roles in some some way i mean we've we've seen that you know what does calvin call them the scooby-doo gang yeah um you know we've seen that that kind of works um and yeah uh, with, especially with a kind of a new money penny as well who knows could have done something there sorry sean um, what, what, what was your thing before no, we got so
0: diverted, I, I, I just i have one final what if um and i'd, I'd be curious to hear everyone's so but particularly Lisa's thoughts on this one. Um, what if Bond didn't have a romantic relationship with Pam Bouvier at the end of them?
3: Like, what if he didn't choose anyone?
0: Mm-hmm. What if they were just colleagues? What if they had a thing and then he just moved on?
3: I, I Here's the thing. I don't think that he's particularly nice to Pam Bouvier. I feel like she gets hurt a lot. Her emotions get hurt a lot over mm. the course of the film. And so when somebody is cruel to you and then i see like oh and they're together it doesn't make me feel very hopeful for the happiness for that relationship so i think i would have been okay if he would have just walked away and
4: it, it would have been hurt. but she I mean, he, was, over he was
1: he was seconds away from playing tongue tennis with lupe
4: right just before the end i mean yeah. it's not like he's like i've only got eyes for you pam was it you never really trust you could never really trust him could you he's off on a mission. No. No, you, you, and for someone like Pam, who is, you know, uh, ruled by emotions, really, um, I think it's a fair assessment. Even though she's very capable and skilled, she's she's very emotional. Uh, I think she would have not enjoyed that relationship particularly. Um, it's, I I think she's one of my she's one of my favorite Bond girls, honestly. Um, Bond women, um, and um, yeah, in in. In my mind, right. In some ways, they get together and Bond doesn't go on any more missions. That's it. He's out of the service, right? That's that's the end for my bubble universe of um, Tim Dalton as Bond. You know, they. He, he So so. There's that. She doesn't have to go through that whole sense of um, what's he doing on this mission or anything. He actually settles down with her in wherever Sanchez's place that they got cheap.
1: Well, in, in in the draft before the final draft, so the penultimate script, she was also a bit of a smuggler uh, on the side of being a CIA pilot. And oh. so she wasn't as by the book straight-laced. And um, the penultimate script ended with her admitting to Bond that she kept some of the money and didn't put all of it in the wave crest
4: um, oh, plant. I like
1: that. And so she hid it in the plane. Um, so they they kind of go off onto the sunset with the stolen money.
4: Oh, I like oh. that. Oh,
0: <laughs> that's what it doesn't. That doesn't feel quite as tacked on. It it doesn't, did, it, did, this doesn't. Like it that. comes out of nowhere. It makes this. sense.
4: Mm-hmm. And it adds another. It adds a nice extra dimension to her character as well. That mm-hmm. like she's been doing this thing on the on the sly without him knowing. And yeah. Yeah, it gives her more agency and more interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot.
3: Otherwise, it just seems like she's sitting there watching and pining.
4: Right. And like, pick
3: pick me, pick me. And my personal opinion is like, I don't play that game. I'm like, you want to be with her? Go be with her. Bye. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I would expect somebody like Pam, who does seem to have a lot of agency, that that's what she would do possibly do. So I like this extra added element that she's got more layers and there's more stuff going on in her life and there's deception going on. And I think that would then make it a little bit more balanced.
4: Hey, hey, and Lisa, how about, how about if like she like Bond, she sees Bond with Lupe and goes, do you know what? I'm not going to waste my time with this guy. She leaves the party, gets in a plane and then, and then you just see the, the, the black plastic, um you know money box in the yes. you just like yeah
1: <laughs> or one of the dollar bills loosely flapping in the wind yeah oh,
3: that's my ending yeah. i think i then this would probably be one of my favorite bond films ever right? if that was the right. ending okay. yes <laughs> yep, yeah. i would yes. cheer
4: i think there is a because we've thought of it now lisa um mm-hmm. There is now a, a parallel universe where that has happened. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I
3: believe, I believe.
4: Yeah, we, we've just magic that into existence. So if, if some, some scientist is out there and create the portal to go to any uh, other other reality, Lisa and I would very much like to go and see this movie. Yes. <laughs> Can, yep. <it> Brosnan. <laughs> <laughs> Can
0: you find out if there's
4: still a winking fish? Um, Oh, God, I, yeah. I mean, I, in some senses, that almost has to go on there somehow, but maybe, right. I don't know. Well, if
1: you would like to read more about Pam's cheeky uh, pocketing some cash exploits, um, it's on page 23 of the new John Glenn License Skill Special in stores now, Um confidential.com. This where has we go been a more, long book. About, it, it has. It's been a one hour, 30 minute sell. Um, (laughs) and you can read more about John Glenn's memories of the movie and uh, all the stuff that didn't quite happen and some of the stuff that did but didn't get into the film too there's cut scenes and all sorts of good stuff in there to get your teeth into like Felix's leg (laughs) (laughs) Mm. alright so thank you very much Phil, Sean, Lisa and Ben bye Bye-bye.
5: bye bye bye